Well, feel free to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. It's on page uh, 1590 in the Pew Bibles. Well, beginnings are important and special. So I hope I don't screw up the beginning of the sermon. Major League Baseball earlier this week celebrated something like it's 144th opening day. And in baseball, there's a reason why we celebrate opening day. We have a ceremonial first pitch and the leadoff batter, who is the first batter in the lineup, is carefully chosen. See, a team wants their leadoff hitter to be someone who will take a lot of pitches, who uh, has a nice long at bat so his team can see the kind of stuff that the opposing pitcher is throwing. You also want your leadoff batter to have a good on-base percentage so he has a good chance of getting on base and his team can take an early lead. Aren't you glad that I'm here to instruct you about how baseball works? Well, we often remember how a song begins, uh, though we might forget how it ends. So I think of uh, the Empire Strikes Back theme, you know, when Darth Vader gets off his spaceship there at the beginning of that movie in the opening scene. I have no idea. I can't remember how that song ends, but I was going to hum the beginning, but Ashley told me it would be awkward. (laughs) Something beginning after a long period of expectation is even more special. So in the first century, the whole nation of Israel had waited for 400 years For God to speak again. Silence from God's prophets for 400 years. After 400 years, you're not really sitting on the edge of your seat anymore. Uh, In fact, many of the expectant waiters had turned into doubters. These were the last words that God spoke through the prophet Malachi before the long silence. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah. Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Then silence. 400 years. 400 years of setting a place for Elijah at the Passover to no avail. Until this. The angel Gabriel appears to a priest named Zechariah. The silence is broken. God's first words to Israel in 400 years echo miraculous events of the past and foretell of miracles to come. You can, you can read about that at the, in Luke 1. The angel, the, basically, the angel tells Zechariah that though he's really old and him and Elizabeth have never been able to have a baby... She's going to get pregnant and they're going to have a son. And it's not going to be just any son, but a son in whom the spirit of Elijah rests and he will prepare the way for the Messiah. You think, you know, Zechariah would have known the prophecy from Malachi well. You would have thought he had been thrilled, but he doubts Gabriel's message. Says, how, how do I know this is going to take place? Think Gabriel would be enough. 
So since Zachariah won't believe and speak God's words, he won't speak at all. Gabriel mutes Zechariah until these things take place. Nine months later, Zechariah's son is born just as God promised. And mute Zechariah instructs that the son's name is to be John. Uh, calling his name John is a sign of Zechariah's new faith. That, that silence did Zechariah good. He, he takes God at his word and he gives his son, the name that God told him to give him, even though it went against the religious traditions. Uh, everybody thought they were going to call him Zechariah or something like that. At this sign of faith, God unmutes Zechariah. Zechariah's tongue is loosed. And then Zechariah speaks the word of the Lord. And like I said, it's found on page 1590 of your pew Bibles. It's Luke 1, 67 through 80. It's what we will be considering uh, for our time this morning. Zechariah says this. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied these words. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. One of the things we learned from this passage is that even religious people like Zechariah need to be saved. Zechariah rejoices that God has come to redeem his people through the Messiah. So for our purposes this morning, we're going to consider that God saves. We have a God who saves, and he saves us from our enemies. He saves us from our sin, and he saves us for the purpose of service. God saves from our enemies, from our sin, and for the purpose of service. So I hope as we consider this text together that all of us, whether you consider yourself religious or not, uh, that you'll be encouraged that God has kept his promises of old and has shown us great mercy in sending Jesus, his son, and to people who, like us who so desperately need to be saved. So first, let's consider that God saves us from our enemies. We, we can see that in verses 67 through 75. I won't read that again. But uh, look particularly at verses 71 and 74. You see that salvation from our enemies, and then it's repeated again, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. You know, I don't know if uh, Jews celebrated birthdays like we do here. Uh, I do know they celebrated circumcisions. 
And uh, the family doesn't sing probably the, the happy birthday song or a snip, snap, scream circumcision song for, for John. But instead, Zachariah is singing a different tune. And uh, he's singing praises to God for John's cousin, for, who hasn't been born yet. He is more excited about the coming of Jesus the Messiah, than he is the birth of his own son. You know, I'm sure Zachariah's got to be thrilled to be a new father after all these years of waiting, and uh, and he's got to be thrilled that who his son's going to be. You know, we'll we'll consider that here later. But Zachariah is more excited for his nation, for Israel, because there's something political and spiritual going on here that transcends even a miraculous birth to an elderly couple. So Zechariah is filled with praise to God. After 400 years of silence and of waiting, God himself has come. The Messiah, the hope of Israel, is here. And the Old Testament promises that the coming of the Messiah meant deliverance. It meant redemption. It meant rescue from Israel's enemies. The time of the second exodus, if you will, the true exodus was here. So how do we know in these verses that Zechariah is rejoicing in the coming of the Messiah? Well, for any Jew, there would have been no doubt uh, what he was talking about. If you even just look at verse 69 alone. It doesn't get any more messianic kind of than this verse right here, because this horn, the symbol of a horn of salvation, uh, you know, a horn back then was a symbol of strength. It was a regal symbol. You know, sometimes even the Old Testament referred to God himself as a as a mighty horn. And the fact that it's coming from the house of David, you know, would have made every Jew think of God's promise to David in Second Samuel chapter seven. In what is known as the Davidic covenant, God promises to establish David's throne and his house forever. And in making this promise, if you were to even go just go back to 2 Samuel 7, you'll see that in doing this, uh, he, God is going to rescue Israel and give her rest from her enemies. In order to establish David's throne, he's got to give rest from the enemies. So you can kind of understand now, as we kind of consider more of the context, why maybe Zechariah's son's birth is a little bit overshadowed in his dad's mind. Because if this promise was really being fulfilled now, Zechariah was probably doing more than just singing. He's probably dancing. You know, he, he is thrilled. But as we as we look in these verses, you know, the promise to David isn't the only promise that's being fulfilled here. Look at verse 73. Zechariah understands that God at the same time is also fulfilling that ancient promise from thousands of years ago to Abraham. You know, we, could, we could turn back there. We won't right now, but you can turn back to Genesis 15. God promises to Abram, you know, childless and old Abram, kind of like Zechariah months earlier, countless children, you know, go out, go outside and look at the stars of the sky. Your kids will be more than the stars that you see. And specifically, you know, he also promises Abram land, you know, and it's the land that Israel's enemies were in at that time. So he's promising them lots of kids and this land. 
in order for God to make good on both those promises, something's got to happen to the enemies. And Zechariah understands that it means judgment for the enemies. It means being rescued from their enemies. And this is a, this is a theme that's throughout the whole Bible. God rescuing his people from their enemies. Uh, we're considering that in Exodus right now in the Liberation Theology series. You know, God saves his people through judging Egypt, uh, where Israel is enslaved. So, Zechariah is excited and stoked that after such a long wait, God is finally keeping these promises that he has made years and years ago. But the judgment of Israel's enemies is not going to happen quite like Zechariah thought. You know, even after the Messiah is raised from the dead, the disciples are kind of thinking like Zechariah. They're like, okay, Jesus, you haven't finished the job yet. So what's what's going on? You know, we can just read exactly what they say in from Luke in the book of Acts. They say to Jesus after he's risen from the dead. So when they meet together, that's the disciples and Jesus. They ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, Zechariah rejoices that God's keeping his promises and sending the Messiah. But he would have been surprised that the Messiah wasn't going to restore Israel and judge their enemies until the Messiah's second coming. You know, we, we know this on this side of the cross. If you've, if you've been in church, you, you understand that's what's going on. And I think that today, as mainly Gentile folks here, sitting here this morning, uh, and, and thinking about Zechariah's song, I, I think that we can make and learn just a few applications from what we see in these first few verses. So just three, three sub-points to this first point. Uh, one, the corporate trumps the individual. Corporate trumps the individual, not corporate like business. But in the new covenant, the new people of God are those who are saved by Jesus Christ. Uh, these people are not from any just one nation, but they are from every tribe, tongue and nation. And the place they exist together as God's people are in the local church. So the church is the new people of God. And, and I think to existing together as a people can be hard for us to wrap our minds around in our American individualism, Facebook, Twitter culture. You know, we, we might read about this, but individualism today is the air that we breathe. I think if you were to import people from the, or export people from the uh, first century in today, they would be shocked. They would think we are so narcissistic and, uh, and self-centered and individual. So I think we, we need to learn something just from the way that Zechariah is uh, speaking and singing his song. Uh, God calls us to put the people of God before yourself. God cares about his people more than he does about just you. God, God does care about just you, but he, he died to redeem a people. So I would encourage you, just take some time to pray and to meditate on what it might look like for you to think of yourself not just as me and Jesus, 
but belonging to a larger people of God in the church. You know, that is why we emphasize membership. That's why we believe membership matters here, because God identifies with a people, a blood-bought people who are his bride. So that's just one. could say more, moving right along. Two, confident praise. So this is sub-point two under one. Confident praise. You know, it's funny here that Zechariah praises God for showing mercy and bringing salvation before God accomplishes it. So he praises God before he actually, God actually does it. He's so confident that he can praise God now, uh, not merely just after what God's promised it, because he knows that God's going to make good on his promises. You know, isn't this exactly what we considered last week in the, in the sermon on the Passover? God tells Israel to celebrate Passover and they're free, they're, they're being, you know, leaving Egypt even before it happens. He, he brings about their deliverance, but they celebrate first. So, so just think about, think about us today. Does confident praise characterize your heart and your mind? Does confident praise characterize you? Do you bank on God's promises that he's made to you as though they've almost already happened? I mean, Zechariah is talking in past tense here at the beginning. Maybe a good thing to talk over lunch today would be how this a confident praise a certainty in what God is going to do, what he promised, could transform your, your giving, your sexuality, your evangelism. Uh, you know, talk, maybe don't talk about the sexuality, but that would be maybe weird, depending on who you have over for lunch. But we would live t- different today if we knew that we had a large inheritance waiting for us, wouldn't we? And we do as Christians. Uh, God's promises to Christians are, are something that are much more valuable than silver, gold, or anything we are tempted to go after in this life. Okay, so that's number two, confident praise. Number three, enemies lose. The enemies lose. So Zachariah's enemies were clearly the Romans. But what about for us? Well, again, I'd refer us back to the first point. Maybe we don't have personal enemies, but the church has many enemies. And I think that we can look at this song and think of our many brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering for their faith in Jesus. I bet if they were to look at verses 71 and 74, they would strike home to the suffering Christians around the world a lot more than they do to us today as we just read it in our, in our kind of easy American context. Uh, scriptures like this should remind us to pray for our suffering brothers and sisters and, uh, and pray that their faithful suffering w- will actually be such a loud witness that those who are persecuting them will be rescued as well. You know, I think as we look at the, our culture here in the United States and where things are trending, it feels like often that the church is losing. Do you, do you sometimes feel embarrassed to tell the old, old story of what God has done for us in, in Jesus? Do you, do you realize that increasingly we think in this culture that as if we speak the message of the cross truthfully, correctly, that we're going to be accused of being old-fashioned, but not only that, uh, bigoted, intolerant, close-minded, and even hateful? Are you ready for that? You know, being a Christian is increasingly not going to be cool. We won't be able to dress it up. We won't, it's going to become not respectable. 
It, it already isn't, especially in the academy. Do you want to teach your kids to follow Christ if it means that they might be fired from their jobs because of their intolerant beliefs in Jesus Christ? You still want to teach your kids to follow Jesus? They might be ostracized from their family and friends for having such a closed-minded perspective. They could even be killed for their faith. Well, we should still want to sign up for this because it is worth it. It is worth all the heartache. It is worth all the suffering because we know the enemies of God lose. It's certain. God's people will be vindicated. And I say, will, and I can say, we can say are vindicated. God's people are vindicated because, not because it's necessarily a present reality, because, but because it's a future certainty. We know this will happen. We can have confidence. We can also have confidence that things are going to get worse for Christians. You know, real Christians will need to feel, will feel the need to be vindicated from their enemies, even if you don't feel it now. The desire for vindication will rise in your heart uh, and rise in the hearts of Christians, just as it did for Zechariah. Now, I think an important point we should make now is that we don't vindicate ourselves. You know, we do not uh, we don't vindicate ourselves by winning any elections or pushing any policy through. You know, we we look to God to vindicate us as we live quiet and peaceful faithful lives to Christ. And we can be sure that Christ will have the victory as we trust him. Well, we consider the beginning of Acts where Jesus' disciples had asked him, when are you going to restore Israel? And Jesus basically responded, only God knows, but I'm going to send you out. I'm going to give you my spirit and send you out to the ends of the earth. And then Luke writes, Luke writes this. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. When Jesus comes again, all will be made right. God's people will be delivered and vindicated from their enemies and and they will be judged eternally. And we'll praise God for it. It's hard to fathom right now, but we will praise God for his justice. Well, Zechariah not only understood that Israel needed to be vindicated and delivered from their enemies, but they needed to be saved from their sin. You know, Israel rejoiced about their enemies being, being judged, but they... They knew and we know that the greatest enemy is actually inside the camp. It's internal. It's not out there, but it's in here. And that's what we want to consider next. God saves us from our sin. And let's, let's, uh, we'll, we'll read verses 76 through 79 here in a minute. That's what we, those are the verses we will consider. You know, God sent a messenger in John the Baptist to prepare the way for his Messiah and to preach a message of repentance uh, for the forgiveness of sins. This is the the messenger. The messenger was who Zechariah was probably holding in his arms as he sang this song. You kind of get this picture, as you see in verse uh, 76, where maybe he turns to his, his little baby boy, and he says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, 
For you will go, go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. You know, John was born with a mission. He was to be God's mouthpiece. He was to prepare the way for the Messiah, as we've already said. And John basically came to say one thing. Repent. He came to say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is coming. And later he says he's now here. He identifies him. You know, verse 77 tells us how John the Baptist would, would prepare the way for the Lord. He says, it says there in 77, by giving his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. In order to receive the Son of God, though, we, we first need to become aware of our own moral and spiritual bankruptcy. John called, came to call Israel to repent, to turn from their sin and to turn to God, turn back to the God of Israel. You know, I think uh, if John's basic message was just repent, the kingdom of God is here, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he would be a popular preacher here today, especially if his messages were that short. You know, if he were to come in here, you know, we would put up with the camel's hair and the B.O. And uh, if his message was that short, but I don't think he would actually be a popular preacher at all today. He would get in our faces. Because that message of repentance, we don't like that. That says that there's something wrong with us. You know, I'm, I'm not assuming that you are religious just because you're sitting here in a church service. I'm assuming that we're all religious because we seek to commend ourselves to God with what we do. We think we are basically good. We look around and we say, yeah, I'm better than him, I'm better than her. I've got it pretty good. I have it put together. You know, even if you, even if you don't believe in God, even if you claim to be an atheist, you're claiming to be, you know, wiser than God, and you're claiming that the God who has made you and revealed Himself to you in in different ways, that uh, you. You're, you're, claiming, you're claiming that you're better than him. You're, you, you think you don't need him, but you're assuming that he's there almost in a sense. You know, even, even the, philo- the distractions that, uh, uh, that you use in philosophy and enjoying pleasures, God gives you the ability to do philosophy and enjoy the pleasures as you seek to block him out. I, I say all this just to say whether you're an atheist, whether you're a casual churchgoer, or whether you're a member of Hinson Church, God's word says one thing to us clearly here. You need to be saved. No matter who you are, you need to be rescued. You are in trouble. And you cannot free yourself. You cannot fix yourself. Try as you might. You cannot fix your body of sin and death. But God, in his tender mercy has provided salvation for you in Jesus Christ, his son. Only Jesus Christ can forgive your sin and make you right with God. So stop. Let's stop trusting our own efforts. Let's 
Stop trusting our own goodness and our own spirituality, but trust alone in what he has accomplished on the cross. You know, just as John preached a message of salvation through the forgiveness of sins, so we, we need to preach this message today and until Christ returns. So I ask you now, are you ready for Christ's return? Are you ready for Christ's return? How, how will you know if you're ready? Well, are you resting in the salvation that is yours in Christ Jesus? The message that we just proclaimed, is that your hope? That your sins are forgiven, not by anything that you've done, but by Christ alone? Or are you resting in yourselves, your goodness, your mercy, that you're not as bad as so-and-so? You know, only those who believe that your sin was so bad that God himself had to come down and die for you will be redeemed, will be rescued from their sin. Those who take pride in their good life or their upstanding character will not be saved, and we should beware. Well, as John the Baptist proclaimed, you know, in his message, uh, those who have been forgiven produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So in light of what is at stake, maybe a useful question to ask your spouse or someone who knows you well would be, do you see evidence of repentance in my life? Do you see evidence of repentance in my life? Or do you see myself kind of making excuses for myself more, defending myself and not saying I'm sorry? You know, I think those of us who are kind of like lawyers who, who defend ourselves, always finding a way to get ourselves in the right, maybe we're afraid to ask that question to someone close to us. But better, we ask it now and, and, and put up with that, put up with maybe hearing what we don't want to hear than hearing it on the last day. Would you rather be confronted today or on the last day? So forgiveness of sins, we know, is always preceded by repentance. So as a church, let's seek to have a posture of humility, a posture of repentance. You know, we won't be perfect, but let's trust in ourselves rather. uh, Let's not trust in ourselves, but rather let's trust in God's mercy. So that's the, the mercy we want to consider in verse 78. See that in verse 78. God gives us knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins, because of his tender mercy for us. I find it interesting that he doesn't just say mercy, but he uses a word which literally means coming up from the depths of someone, deep within someone. And they they go with tender, which, okay, is fine. But, uh, and how does God show us this tender mercy, this, this mercy that comes from deep within his very being? Well, look at verses, uh, the rest of verse 78 and 79. We were in darkness and in the shadow of death. All of us were here. None of us were born in the light. We all wanted to do what we wanted to do. We didn't want anybody telling us what to do, even if it was God himself. But God's light comes to us from heaven and melts our icy hearts. His light and warmth brings life and thaws our wintry limbs that are set on sin. You know, the, the word that Zechariah uses for the rising sun literally means that which springs up. It would have called to mind uh, the branch or the sprout from Isaiah 11.1 1, or the star of Jacob in Numbers 24.17. You know, this rising sun is clearly, again, messianic. This is the Lord who comes and visits his people, just as we considered in verse 68. And this rising sun is who John the Baptist goes before to prepare a way for. The Messiah and his light shines on you now, even as you hear his word. 
will you come into the light? Will you feel that warmth of the sun? You know, after long winters in Oregon, you would, if on a beautiful sunny day like we had, you know, last week, we would be fools to stay inside and stay like in our basement, you know, used to that. Go, come into the light. It's beautiful outside. The sun of God shines and he brings life to our dead bodies and brings and guides our feet into paths of peace. And that's what we consider here at the end of verse 79. He has not just come to free us from death, but he has come to reconcile us with our father so that we might know peace with him through his son and peace with one another. So is the Messiah's light shining on you today? You know, Zechariah understood that his feet still needed to be guided into paths of peace. God doesn't just forgive us and then leave us to figure out the rest of the Christian life. He doesn't save us and then, okay, now be good. No, he forgives us and then calls us to walk in paths of repentance and his paths of light. So let the light of Christ continue to guide you as you repent of your sins and trust that Christ is sufficient to cover even the worst of sins. He's, He's sufficient to cover even the sins that you're not aware of, you know. So often our sins, like an iceberg, we only see the very tip. But underneath, there's this massive iceberg of sin. And God's light is powerful even to forgive and to melt that giant iceberg. You know, gradually over time as we're conformed to the image of Christ. And then finally, forever, when he returns and we meet him in the clouds. Well, we should rejoice like Zechariah that through the Messiah, God saves us from our enemies and from sin. But God also saves us for the purpose of service. And we'll just consider this last point more briefly. God saves us for the purpose of service. And we're going to jump back up to verses 74 and 75, which say to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and, and, and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The reason God saves us is so that we might worship him. He saves us so that we might serve him in eternal happiness forever. Uh, We were created for worship. God doesn't save us for an eternal vacation of just kind of sitting around. No, he saves us so that we might serve him. Uh, You know, the first thing that we see about the service and verse 74 is that it should be fearless. He saves us for fearless service. This is enabled because God, as we we considered in the first point, he saved us from our enemies. He's already won the battle. Uh, We don't need to commend ourselves to God any longer. Uh, To do that would be fearful. Uh, You know, if we were to conserve God in order to prove ourselves to him, that would be fearful service because we're always wondering, is my service good enough? If I'm I'm measuring up, I see so-and-so doing more. I I guess I got to step up my game. No, rather we rejoice that our enemies of sin and death have been defeated and that we are accepted into God's family because of his tender mercy, because of his grace. And then we are filled with joy and we can go out and serve him. Nothing to prove. You know, our family, uh, well, really Ashley, has been doing uh, a good bit of yard work lately in our yard uh, since we've been having nice weather. And uh, we have a three-year-old named Sam. I've talked about him in sermons before. Um, I can only do this for so much longer and then he'll get embarrassed. So I'm going to use, do it while I can. Uh, you know, you might find it surprising Sam, or you might, you, you won't find it surprising, but Sam loves to help, you know, Ashley in the garden, you know, digging around and stuff. He, you know, he loves to help out, 
But, it, you know, let's be honest, it's not that big of a help. <laughs> you know, uh, but he loves it. He loves getting in there, getting dirty, helping helping mom, helping dad in the garden. Uh, he loves to be engaged in the in the projects that we're engaged in. And so we're, you know, we're really happy to have him there because we love him and he loves us. You know, I think there's something very similar going on with God and his children when we think about service. You know, he, he doesn't need us. In fact, he, he could accomplish the task much easier without us screwing it up all the time. But he delights in using us and us being a part of the work. You know, he, he's going to be the one who actually accomplishes the project. But, you know, it's amazing. I, I can't do this with Sam, but God does it with us. He, he uses us as the means to accomplish his ends. He, he, like, legitimately uses us. He's not just, like, putting up with us. You know, this is remarkable. This should fill us with joy, not with fear. God's not a cruel taskmaster who's going around saying, you know, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this all the time. No, he delights to be in relationship with us and to, for us to serve him. And when we serve him, we, we, are, we enjoy his mercy. We enjoy his, his love and we're filled with happiness. You know, finally, we see our service to God is to be in holiness and in righteousness. What does this look like for us? Well, I think there's to be a moral quality, an obedience to our service. God is concerned about our obedience. So think about, are, am I obeying God in my service? My money, th- think through the different roles and categories of your life. And when, think about it for, for you, in, if, if you're a part of this church or whatever church you're a part of, is your service holy and righteous in the body of Christ? You know, what would it look like to be an obedient and righteous servant in at Henson Baptist Church? And, and finally, we see two finally, we see that the service to God is to be forever. You know, Zechariah says all our days. You know, I don't think Zechariah, we, we don't know if Zechariah was thinking of heaven here necessarily, but if he wasn't thinking of it, he spoke more than he knew. Because when we look at the book of Revelation and we see this picture of of God's saints, his purchased blood-bought people around the throne who have come out of the great tribulation. Yet what are they doing? What are they doing in heaven? Well, it tells us, Revelation 7, they serve him day and night in the temple as they are sheltered by his presence. I don't think that's going to be dull service. I don't think that's going to be boring or frustrating. You know, I think the Bible is pretty clear that all the joy, all the pleasure, if you were able to collect all of that from your, from your life and compare it to one millisecond of serving God before his throne, it wouldn't even compare. It'd be so much better to be one second before the throne of God serving him rather than all the pleasures and joys of this world. So let's get a taste of that joy now by devoting our life to the service of our rescuer and our redeemer. We should conclude. Our God is a God who saves. A God who saves a people who were his enemies. Through the life and death of Jesus Christ. Through the coming of Messiah. All of us deserve God's judgment. 
but he shows us tender mercy in sending his son and, and, and purchasing a people for his glory, for, his, for serving him forever. So would you turn to Jesus today in repentance and in faith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the mighty God who is able to overcome lives of independence and seeking to be autonomous from you. Lord, we praise you as the God who melts hard hearts and makes us rejoice in knowing and in serving you. So, Lord, we pray now that we would cling tightly to your tender mercy that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.